there's an energy that comes through the image on the cover as well that transcends the lines and arcs and shapes. It's hopefully the energy of me. And then together, the collaboration is trying to blast out love vibes. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways Podcast. In our new season, we're bringing together bands and the artists they work with for a conversation about creativity and collaboration. You'll hear stories that go deeper into the art behind the music that you love, and you'll get to know bands in a completely new way. I'm your host, Rob Goodman. I'm a longtime music lover, illustrator, and I've created artwork for all kinds of bands, from King Crimson to Ben Folds. I'm obsessed with the way visual art and music can combine to make a whole that is so much larger than the sum of its parts. In this season of the show, I've selected bands that have a long-standing creative relationship with their visual artist counterparts. These conversations will give you a glimpse into the album-making process, the creative process, and tell the human stories that bring people together to make art you can see, hear, and most importantly, feel. I hope every listener, no matter if you know these artists or not, takes away something from each episode that you can apply to your own creative practice, your work, or even your personal life. And music fans, you'll get a new perspective on the work of some of your favorite performers. In this episode, I sit down with Matthew Cause, lead singer and songwriter for Not A Surf, and Melissa Unger, a lifelong friend of the band whose watercolor appears on the band's latest album, Never Not Together. I chose these two because I love this band so much, and I was really taken by the album artwork. Melissa's intuitive and organic watercolor brushstrokes show a rhythm and a creative state of flow that drew me into the abstract imagery immediately. There's a beauty and a naivete to the work that makes it so easy to love. The circles and lines that appear on the album cover are non-representative, but I still see a connection to the album. In her work, I see varying states of unity and isolation, themes that Matthew and the band express throughout the new record. It was all the more surprising to me to learn that so much of the reason that these two came together for the album artwork was based on their relationship with one another and Melissa's process as an artist, her morning pages, her everyday routine to wake up, to take watercolor to paper, and without premeditation, simply create. In this episode, you'll hear us discuss the band's latest album, Matthew's creative process. He likens it to picking up dirt, adding water, and trying to see what sticks to the mud house. We talk about devotion to creativity and the value of hot hands when trying to catch creative fire. We also discuss how these two lifelong friends ended up finally collaborating in this way. We recorded this conversation early in the morning for me on the West Coast and early on in the pandemic. Melissa was in Brooklyn and Matthew in the countryside of the United Kingdom. We kick things off chatting about the band's latest album, Given all that's been going on in the world over these last couple of years, I asked Matthew where his head was at during the writing process. The way things play out on records for me has a lot to do with how I feel personally. And like everyone, everyone writing for a long time, there's an arc, you know, what you thought about when you were young, what you thought about when you were a young adult, and now that I'm middle-aged, what I'm thinking about now. And I happen to be in a newly very, very stable stage in my life, which I hope and trust is a, is a permanent one, I've arrived at kind of a peace in my home. And that has allowed me and also sort of forced me out of a sense of duty to think about where I'm looking. And I started out like a lot of people looking totally inside and our early records are very, for lack of a better word, very angsty. And it's a lot about my own love story, misadventures, missed opportunities, missed shots, whatever, insecurity, struggles with willpower. And that's the only constant that's still everywhere because it's still kind of a central issue for me that I try to take the self-pity out of it because I don't really have any. But willpower is just something I think about a lot and struggle with. But I've been trying to look out. That's in a lyric. I feel silly saying it, but I'm trying to look out. And also... Being a rock and roll musician at the age of 52, I've done this for a long time, and I've had a lot of great times and toured a lot. And I do really ask myself, why am I still doing it? I mean, of course, it's fun, but what's the utility? 
So I've been trying to, as silly as it sounds, be useful in writing because it's the only thing I can work at. I'm an accidental, I don't even want to say poet, you know, but lyrics can be poetry. But if I ever sort of get near a kind of poetic, lyrical something, it's really accidental. I'm not a daily or even weekly pretend poet even. So I can't work at that. That can happen by accident sometimes. But what I can work at is just sit down and in very, sometimes very cliched ways, say, how can I be comforting? How can I be of use? How can I take what I have or figure out what I have and share it? And one thing that I do have is a kind of equanimity and a kind of positivity. I'm very comfortable with contradiction. And I feel lucky that way. And it makes me want to share that comfort because I think we are a completely contradictory people. The very thing we live with, the fact that we are all getting older and we're all going to die, and yet we're all seeking happiness and stability and success, those two things are in opposition. Our central truth is contradiction. And we're all pretty comfortable with that. We must be. We're here. You're, you're all in your decorated. You see things on your walls. You're trying to give yourself a pleasant reality. So we're all good with that. But are we good with the contradictions of, let's say, love and knowing it might go away? Or are we comfortable with knowing that a lot of our friends love us, but some people must think we're foolish? Can we deal with that? Can we deal with leaving the house every day, hopeful and positive, knowing that we are going to make a faux pas? We are going to lose something. We're going to say something hurtful and not mean it. We might say something hurtful and mean it and then regret it. You know, like it's a thorny world and yet we head out into it. I appreciate that. I mean, I see a lot of that in the lyrics for the new album. Mm. So this is your your ninth studio album. You all have been a band for over 25 years. And I see a lot of understanding, a lot of recognition, a lot of acceptance, but a lot of push-pull between staying inward, looking outward. There's still a lot of tension, even though there's like a lot of love Mm -hmm. in the lyrics Mm -hmm. and a lot of love that I feel like the music is putting out there. Do you reflect on the record now that it's been a, a minute? I know you were touring. I was lucky enough to see you in January at Great American mm. Music Hall in here in San Francisco, wonderful. which was wonderful. And uh, it was a great show. And then I know you were in touring in Europe and needed to cut that short. Now that there's been a little bit of space between the making of the release of the album, reflecting on it in this current climate, how do you feel like it reflects or helps kind of shine light on, on where we are? I think the way that it still relates in a different light is shining is that one thing I was trying to get at was talking about division and talking about acceptance. I've gotten a little tangles online on Facebook, for example, with people of very opposing views. And it's been very interesting. And I've noticed that the one thing that really helps is not arguing and not yelling. It really makes a difference. And a couple of times, I'm embarrassed to say I hung in there for like an hour and a half, two hours. Why was I doing that with someone who's being pretty trollish? And I just stayed. And in both cases, they both wrote to me and said, they didn't say moved, but they said, I was very appreciative that you did not yell at me. I've heard that all lefties or Democrats will just yell at you. And so this kind of, you know, Muhammad Ali had a technique or something called rope-a-dope, where he would lean back against the rope and let the other person punch him, and he would let the rope take the impact and wait. And that's kind of a silly metaphor to bring up because I'm not waiting to attack anybody, but the just hanging back while someone vents, and when they realize that you're not fighting back, it might transform them a little bit. So the long-winded way of saying that's a major theme of the record is just, I can't quote them, I don't know them really, but they're lines like, you don't have to be right, it's overrated anyhow, things like this, you know. and Now that we're in the pandemic, one thing is still happening, well, you know, very much, which is that there's still a lot of division. And we are more than ever, 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 ever living in separate worlds, separate worlds of facts, separate news bubbles, separate friend bubbles, and themes of calm, uh, reaching across, tolerance, willingness to take a chance on somebody, willingness to put yourself in their shoes, to check yourself you know, even though we're not all out there in the world, we're all on our computers. So now it's like our social life, political life, 
everything that we're doing that's human, i.e. with other people, we're now doing with words, not looks anymore so much, and anonymous words too, So, which sort of enables our, our basest behaviors sometimes. Right. And to Matthew's point, if I may, I think what's really interesting, there's a nice nuance that it's like, I think people just want to be heard. A lot yeah. of anger, you know, they say that that violence, like when, you know, when I was living in France and there were some, not during the terrorist, I mean, I was there during the terrorist attacks, but I mean more like kids that take the streets and violence. They say that violence is the language of people that have lost their voice in a way. It's like you resort to that. And so I think that there's something when Matthew was speaking, the notion of listening to someone who is angry, like even a troll, like I think we've lost the nuance that you can listen without agreeing. Yes. That listening to someone doesn't mean that it's a tacit agreement or a tacit validation of their feelings, but you can still, I know it's a very new agey term, but you can still hold space for someone and receive what they're saying and be like, that's really interesting. And even if you don't agree with them, you can even be like, I'll think about that perspective, you know, and it doesn't mean that it's going to change your mind, but just validating someone so that they feel heard. Because I think sometimes people hang in and get even more aggressive because they feel like they're being dismissed, you know? So just the notion, right? I think, yeah, I mean, if I were distilling it, I would say listening doesn't mean agreeing. Listening just means listening. And then you can disagree later, but sometimes just the act of listening is pacifying. I see those connections in both your art, Melissa, and your music, Matthew. Melissa, you and Matthew have known each other for many, many years. Am I right about that? That you that <laughs> many, you met in high many, school? Many, many, many years. We <laughs> met in, in ninth grade. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So this is a really uh, long-term collaboration, like long-in-the-works collaboration here with your art and Matthew's music. Like, Were there moments in your knowing each other and friendship where you wanted to do collaborations or did this idea of Melissa your watercolor on the cover of the record was it just spontaneous how, how did that happen well I'll just say one thing I just want to say that I mean our friendship is so long that it's really a, a, like a family relationship now but what's been amazing is watching and seeing a friend start to become a new and beautiful thing and I hope Melissa will talk to you about Seymour in Paris but I sort of feel like I'm a, the same way I say it, sometimes an accidental poet, I'm kind of an accidental humanist. But Melissa has gone so far into that that I've been transfixed. So I always listen and watch and see what she's up to. And then all of a sudden, this incredible art started happening. But I, we should just ping pong back and forth. But I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like hearing it from you. I mean, what I would say, if we're, I guess we'll, we'll talk about each other, because it's <laughs> always much more comfortable than talking about yourself. Um, um, Matthew has always been the kindest person. And that's my experience of him. And I would just say that to answer your question of has a collaboration been in the works for a long time, I would say no and yes. I would say that we were on very different career tracks for a long time. So we never, I don't think really had an opportunity where we were like, we would do something together in a collaborative sense, the way he does with other artists, you know, whether musically like Juliana or, you know, other people. But I would say the word humanist that Matthew brings up, I think we're both quite sensitive, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean weak. It just means sensitive, which means we're, we're sensitive to our worlds, to sounds, to smells, to emotion. And I think even when we were young, before we realized that about each other, sometimes you're drawn to each other for a reason that you don't even understand until your adult self starts to be able to put words on that. And I think our sensitivity and our way of looking at the world, which was different. We're the weird kids, you know, in a weird way. But at the same time, we knew how to navigate. So we had a similar way of being in the world and of coping in the world that I think brought us together. And Matthew's kindness has always been a tremendous inspiration to me, even before I took my turn in, in my career, which we can talk about later. I don't think Matthew will mind me telling the story. It's quite funny, actually. It's like, when you're a kid, you know, you're kind of like, you're not always the nicest person. Like you always kind of want to gossip and you want to like talk about stuff and you want to, you know, before you sort of morally graduate from that not being okay. And even when Matthew was really young, he had a complete inability to badmouth anyone. And I remember him, I'd come in and I'd be like, oh my God, can you believe like so-and-so, like blah, 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 like whatever bullshit, you know, a 14-year-old talks about or whatever. And he would just turn the conversation away to the point that 
I was like, what's wrong? Like this, it was almost irritating. You know, we we're like, bonkers. I was almost like, say something, you know, and he just, and I just think it's just not in his nature. I think he really has this beautiful nature. And it's funny to hear him talk at the beginning about his perception of what the Not A Surf albums are, because to me, that goodness and that inherent optimism has always come through in Not A Surf. And I think that that's what makes the fans just like, rabid fans because it's just this incredible uplifting even when he's complaining it's beautiful do you know what i mean like if he's his heartbroken it's still still beautiful so anyway yeah there's always there's always a light shining in the yeah. uh, in the darkness yeah. i think that's incredible to to hear all that and and melissa when i was looking into your background i mean from art to media to advocacy to art space and like interactive experiences it's just an incredible winding career. So yeah, the watercolors seem like, sure, it's one expression, but you have a vast history of experiences with art and supporting people in all different kinds of ways. Can you talk to me a little bit about your journey to where you are today? And you just talked about these kind of two years off to recenter and, and reorganize your practice. Tell me a little bit about this path. Well, thank you for looking into it a little and giving that little synopsis. Because when people ask me, what do you do? I'm always like, oh, Jesus, what am I going to like? <laughs> I never know how, where, to, where to begin. So that initial framework helps me a little bit. Yeah. I even know that you're the personal assistant to Robert De Niro and Daniel Day-Lewis. That's, I, um, yeah. that's, I mean, that's enough <laughs> stories, I'm sure, in that short moment of your life to fill up the whole podcast. My nightmare at a cocktail party is, what do you do? I'm like, oh God, I just, I don't know what to say. But, you know, I can only answer you in hindsight. I think it's very important to show the truth of an arc rather than to clean it up, right? So there's a funny meme that was going on a while ago and it was a little posted and had success and people say, think what success is and it was like a straight line. <laughs> and then it was like, you know, like all like scrambly and back and forth and back and forth and then success. And so I would say that while I was evolving in the world, from when I graduated college at 21 to 52, which I am now, I cannot say that I had a fixed trajectory upon which I was focused. I know that would make for a better story and to be like, you know, I always knew exactly what I, you know, and it's not at all. Sure. It was, and I realize now that I've thought about it a lot because I have had to discuss it on a number of occasions. I think that I have always been led by curiosity, a real love for human beings, and a passion for their output, which I find magical. So in trying to sort of synthesize this wacky journey, when I look for points that correlate, really it's creativity, humanity, and the magic that's within us that we find different ways to externalize, right? And that can be a scientist. It's not just a creative or just a musician or just an artist. But in my world, it just turned out that I ended up in the creative field. So I stayed with creativity. But you mentioned those two famous actors. I realize now that watching them transform themselves as human beings to inhabit different roles and all these various things that I was intaking without consciousness, let's say before, I feel like I had kind of an awareness that happened when I was in my mid thirties, when I moved to France. But before that, I think I was just ingesting this stuff and it was having an impact on me without me really understanding what it was. And then to try to synopsize this so that I'm not talking for three hours, basically the big pivot in my life happens when I moved to Paris, when I'm in my early 30s, I, was, I think I was about 36 when I moved, whole host of personal reasons, which I won't go into now. But it was the first time in my life that I wasn't like at a job and like super stressed out, like typical New York person, you know, just like constantly thinking, constantly having a million things to do. I also personally suffered from quite acute anxiety. And I just constantly had racing thoughts. And I end up in Paris, and it's the first time in my life where I don't have somewhere to go, someplace to be, something to do. And in that space, I experience an altered state of consciousness. Okay. So some people call it awakening or like an aha moment or whatever, something that I had not experienced before. And it was what I now understand to be meditation. So I accidentally, while walking around Paris with 
no stressors, no external stressors in my life for this brief period accidentally triggered a meditative state. And what that meant was that all of the racing thoughts in my head, you know, it's like cloudy water. We've all read these metaphors, you know, for meditation. It's like, you know, muddy water, which are all our thoughts. And then the mud settles to the bottom and the water is clear. And then the lotus blooms, right? And so the lotus blooming is the creativity, right? So in that moment, a sentence came into my head, which was Peter never ate, which is really weird. And I ended up writing a novel. And the reason why the novel is important was the experience that I had writing it, which was, I don't feel like I wrote it. I feel like I channeled it. Like it came through me. I felt like I became a vessel for it. And I wasn't going like, this is a character and that character will have that motivation and this will go and this will be the arc. I would just get in front of the white page and really get myself out of the way. That book was called Gag and it that came out in... Yeah, I can't remember when. 2014, I think. Yeah, and I wrote it years before that. But yeah, it's less important really what the book is about. What's more important, because everything that I do, I feel like is much less about me. It's all experiments. So I don't care like to promote the book or I, it doesn't matter to me. What's interesting to me is encouraging other people to try something similar and experience a state of consciousness in which they can release the shaming voice or the critical voice or the voice that tells you that you can't do it or the voice that tells you that it sucks or the voice that tells you that it's impossible and just get out of the way. Like there's a beautiful John Cage quote that I'm going to butcher, but it's basically like when you go into the studio at the beginning, everyone is in there, your friends, your family, your teachers. And then the more you work one by one, they all leave the room. And then if you're really lucky, even you leave. And I love that quote. And I have it taped to my wall. The short, well, forget it's too late for the short version, but the (laughs) medium version is that in the next decade, I became obsessed with what I had experienced and I researched what it was. And like many people before me, I realized that flow, inspiration, it's all the same thing. We're just calling it something different. So the jazz guy that riffs when he's not there is something. Maybe when Matthew's in flow, when he writes a song, it's something else. And so the watercolors came out of a morning practice that I used to have, which was to do morning pages, which is something people have done forever, and surrealist writing, which is sort of just flowing out what's in you. And for me, it was not really for creativity. It was salutary because I was anxious. And so I would use those morning hours to sort of empty my mind of the stuff that was trotting around my head. And then thankfully over the years in doing so, I became a much calmer person, but I got into the habit of having those morning hours. And so eventually it was like, how can I fill these morning hours? And instead of anxiety came beauty. I mean, not to make it too poetic, but it's really true. And no one was more surprised than me when that stuff started coming out of me. (laughs) I gotta tell you. Did it actually calm your mind and your body to make the work? Hugely. Hugely. I absolutely feel that these practices of finding different ways, and it's not my way, I don't believe in method, but whatever works for different people, but the notion of the possibility that you are not your thoughts and that you are the person watching your thoughts. When I was really anxious, that was an enormous door opening for me. There's a thing about anxiety where they say it's like being on a horse with no saddle, you know, and no bridle and you're just going off and someone's standing on the curb and goes like, where are you going? And you're like, I don't know, ask the horse because it's sort of like, I don't know. And then when you realize that you are not your thoughts and that you can witness your thoughts, that infinitesimal gap between you and your thoughts gives you an opportunity to be able to make a different decision or not be a slave to them. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like that gap, which started out as like the teensiest crack, is now like wide swinging double doors. And I have the opposite problem where I almost have a harder time focusing and being in rationality than I do being in this sort of la-la space. And I, and I right. felt it in my body, Rob, like it, it really rewired my nervous system. And I think what Matthew was talking about so kindly and hedging, cause he's the sweetest guy. It's like saying to someone like, you know, oh my God, you lost so much weight. That means I was like fat before. Right. So when he says, <laughs> you know, 
No, but when he says, I've seen her bloom, what he means is like, she was a fucking like, oops, sorry, I can't curse. She was a, she was a, you, know, <laughs> you like can, a, you can curse <laughs> a, a crazy anxious mother before. And now look at, you know, he doesn't want to say that, but that's basically, <laughs> that's basically what's happened, you know, is that right. so it, it really rewired my nervous system. So more than anything, before we get back into the album and the music, it's like any work that I do is really an encouragement to others of what's possible rather than what it means about me, basically. Looking into your work now, and you're the founder of Seymour Projects, and the Seymour space looked like an incredible kind of physical manifestation of what you're describing. Was that the intention, that this would be a space where people could come in, experience it, and have their own kind of epiphanies and creative explorations? Yes, 100%. And Rob, I just have to say, thank you for being such a great and resourced and researched interviewer because so many people don't get that connection. So I, I really appreciate that you did. And I appreciate it. It's very meaningful to me. Yeah, I wish I had the chance to visit. I think I would have uh, loved it. Thank you for that. Because uh, like the amount of time that I've had to explain that, it's, it's just very, very uplifting to have someone just get it. So thank you for being that person. Yes, it's exactly that. It's, it was five different spaces that were based on different modalities that I certainly didn't invent, but sort of made them à ma sauce, as we say in French, like to my sauce, like I made them my way. And that was exactly that. It was an opportunity for people to have the experience that I had those first days in Paris, which was to take a time out. People would have to lock up, you know, all of their stuff in lockers and then embark on this experience. So yes, that's what it was. Wow. That's amazing. And Matthew, I'm curious, as we're talking about like these morning pages and practices, when and if do you move into that kind of meditative creative flow state? And do you have a daily practice or is it kind of was a feast or famine on off switching with creative output for you? It's somewhere in the middle. And I always want to have a regular practice. And I, I generally don't. Right now, the only thing I'm doing, this is ridiculous, is taking a cold shower in the morning. That's my only, oh, that's that's my only current thing. It's good. Yeah. It's something my sister Hillary has been doing for five years. She takes just at the very end, it's called a Scottish shower. At the very end, you just put it freezing cold. And what's interesting about it is that it makes you confront an act that you don't want to do in the moment, but that you want to do in the big picture. And so many things that we do are that. So every time you look at that faucet and go, I don't physically want to do this, but I know it's good for me. It's good for my health. It's good for my immune system. I'll feel more energized after my shower. I, my clothes will feel hot when I put them on. It's great in summer. And then you do it. So, and now I've just gone to the full, just getting in a cold shower, which I love. And that's really for want of anything else to say, because I don't have a work practice. Now, the thing about the cover of the record is that were it not a dear friend and were there not a story behind it, I would still have wanted it. And it is a really, really beautiful watercolor. And <laughs> conversely, uh, were it not for the art itself, I might have looked at another thing that Melissa had made and, and wanted on a lot of levels to love it enough to use it because I'm such an admirer of her practice. So I've been talking my, my whole my whole life just shooting the shit with friends, pardon my French, about what you could do in 15 minutes every day. It's just a little thing I've always said like, oh my God, if you uh, spent 15 minutes a day for a whole year doing X, you could get it done. You could learn a language, you could build a canoe, having no experience with woodworking. I mean, it's literally, I can't think of what you couldn't do in 15 minutes every morning. I have very rarely had that kind of regularity, but I pine for it. I am moved by it. I'm a little obsessed with seeing it. Any story of somebody having this kind of devotional practice really moves me. There's an outsider artwork in France. I don't even remember the area. I've been three times called the ideal palace of the postman cheval. So the, le palais idéal du facteur cheval, it's called. And it is, yeah, yeah. it's a cement drip castle that this postman made in his backyard on weekends. And it's incredible. It's a huge, wild, fantastic palace, literally. It's fantastic because it's made of dreams and phantasms. But I love that cover so much. But the fact that it was done as part of this practice is really beautiful. And I think devotional is the word I want to repeat and lean into because there's something about when we're doing that and when we stay long enough for everybody to leave. And when we stay long enough for ourselves to leave, 
what are we devoted to when we do it? We're devoted to the luck of being alive. We're devoted to being kind to ourselves. And in the same way that on an airplane, you have to give yourself oxygen before anybody else. We have to be kind to ourselves so that we're able to be kind to others, so that we're strong enough to be able to help other people. So on a lot of levels, the origin of it is very, very meaningful to me. And also the fact that, Melissa, that you're not or were not an artist. Totally. Still not. And it's funny, I still resist that moniker, which is so interesting because I've championed artists my whole life and there's no community that I probably, well, that's an overstatement to say that I respect more, but I, I, I do. But there's something about the world artist in the contemporary art world that I've been in in the last 15 years that has a mercantile association that I'm uncomfortable with. And another reason I'm uncomfortable with it for myself is that my whole goal in life is sort of broadening this. Mm -hmm. And so if I paint myself, no pun intended, <laughs> as an artist, okay. it puts me in, in a rarefied atmosphere and says that I have a special skill, which I don't. Every single person can do what I do. Do you know what I mean? And so for me, the goal is in any form of creativity is taking away the duality of good and bad removing yes. the notions of value and making it about just self-expression, really. And just to rebound on one of Matthew's points, when he talks about, you know, the oxygen mask and the devotion, it's very true. Like in my practice, those two things concord perfectly, which means that the practice that I do is dissimilar in a way from Matthew's morning shower because we all need different things, right? We come from different places and I'll just touch on that in a second. But for me... I only do practices that I enjoy. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like I have to make this watercolor every morning. I enjoy it. And what it does for me personally is that it gets me into that channeling space. It calms me and it reminds me that that's the world that I want to live in. And so it's sort of like touching something soft so that when you're out in the hard world during the mm -hmm. day, it's like having a little piece of fur in your pocket. Mm -hmm. Like you can just mm -hmm. thumb it like whenever you need to, when you touch that softness in the morning. So if I'm out and someone is baiting me or someone, something stressful is happening, because I touch that piece of softness in the morning, I recall that it's there for me and I can go back to it whenever I want. So it's a devotion to myself and to finding that kindness so that I don't snap at others and mm -hmm. don't. And it's helped me with boundaries and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's been really helpful in that way. And and that's another thing just about ritual and practice. I'm always a little bit trepidatious around gurus and people with methods because people come from different places. So without divulging too much about Matthew, but he said it himself, his issue is sort of seeking discipline, right? So that's his thing. Like he wishes he had a practice, whatever. And my thing is the opposite. I come from hyper-discipline, a touch of OCD, anxiety of a different kind. So my journey, like my shrink used to say, don't make your bed today, leave dishes in the sink. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I have to learn how to fuck up right. and I have to learn how to chill. And whereas somebody else might actually need more torque and more, you know, so yeah. we all need different yeah. things. So, so yeah. universal answers, universal methods, be it in self-help and spirituality and whatever, I'm always a little nervous about, you know, so it's like Alan Watts has a famous quote, the philosopher where he used to say, like, they used to say, do you meditate every day? And he would say, I meditate every day, except on the days that I don't. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, hearing the story of the practice and the connection to self, like it really makes me see the artwork and the artwork's connection to the album in a completely different light. Mm -hmm. You know, here I was really viewing the album art as kind of this artifact to be put on the shelf and admired. And it's quite the opposite. It's about the process. It's about the connection to self. It's about this personal relationship, Matthew, that you have with Melissa and like the personal story that Melissa has behind creating the art that really, for me, connects back to the lyrics that are in the album because it's all about connecting to self, being more honest, being more truthful, showing more of that authentic self openly and hoping for not a lot of external judgment and trying to hold back your internal judgment. And that's, I think, what the art is. It didn't have this intention, but the process and the practice behind it is what connects to the art. It's almost like the aesthetic is, is a happy accident, that it is so beautiful. 
in and of itself. I agree. And I just would take it a step further. And, and I would hazard that Matthew would agree. Let's take it a layer further. When Matthew writes a song, there's the lyrics that's meaningful. There's his intention. There's the album. There's the band. There's each thing. But really, people go away with like a general feeling, right? Like you can sometimes listen to a song and not even understand the lyrics like people in other languages or whatever. But the energy and the humanity of each different musician and what they pour into it. Music is an extension of a human vibration, right? It's his energy going into the strings. His vocal cords are his energy. So it's like literally an externalization of Daniel, Ira, you know, Louis, Doug, whoever else is on the album's souls. And that's what I think makes Not A Surf so special is that all of them are such present, kind, awake individuals that beyond the actual music, I mean, this may be a little too esoteric, but this, my belief is that it comes through. And I'd like to think in all humility that there's an energy that comes through the image on the cover as well, that transcends the lines and arcs and shapes. It's hopefully the energy of me. And then together, I think we all come from a place, you know, you asked at the beginning, like, what's the collaboration? The collaboration is trying to blast out love vibes, you know, for a really hippie-ish thing to say. (laughs) I mean, Matthew, I don't, I don't know what you think about that, but. Yeah, no, I I agree totally. And and actually there's so many things I want to say I might not be able to, but there's a thing and I think it's in music. I've heard someone use the term beginner's mind and that even very experienced musicians and artists, maybe it's an artistic trope, I'm not sure, but that even if you're very experienced, you still, if you can, want to reach the beginner's mind. And I understand, for example, Melissa, you're not wanting to say you're an artist. You know, for the first 15 years of my professional music life, when I would have to write on the immigration form profession, and I wrote musician, I had a weird, like, <laughs> it's not imposter syndrome. It's just like, really? It's, it's my hobby. that I, It's the thing I love. Do I? I, I mean, I, I should just put lucky, you know, like I get to do this for a job. But I think a part of that also is not wanting to lose my beginner's mind that I feel is kind of where I live musically. Pop songs, you know, from a distance, they kind of all look alike. And then up close, each one's its own little world. And that doesn't mean that they have to be very detailed. It's just the very idea that like pretending these two chords have never been put together before when when they are all day, every day. The resistance to labeling is also to loop back to sort of the broader social discussion we were having at the beginning of the podcast. It's like everything is very tribal, right? And if you're one thing, you're not another. And that then creates difference between people and that inadvertently the duality of that, even if it's non-conflictual, creates difference. And if we're in the business of unity, I resist labels. Like on my Facebook page, it says human being. So when you were saying like lucky and there was a, a point when my CV was so convoluted, like as you said, it was like a night, literally a nightmare socially. And I went through like a douchey phase when people would be, what do you do? And I would be like, good. You know, I try to do good. And I was like, oh my God, that's so fucking pretentious. Like, I can't actually say that. But it's like, the reality, you know, because then that puts you like hierarchically above and then you're bestowing it on, you know, it's yeah. so right, 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 right. it's like unnavigable waters. But I think that th- there's something about those labels that just make us, you know, and what's been kind of great about society's advancement into this sort of, you know, slasher culture, you know, it was like model actress was, I think the first one, but now it's like, everybody does a million things. So, you know, you're kind to look at my career and be like, oh, it's very varied. But because I'm in my fifties at the beginning, like that was less happening. People would stick with a horse, you know, for their whole life. But I think that in our new culture, even pre-COVID with the gig economies and everything, everybody's doing a whole bunch of stuff. And I think that that's actually really interesting for culture. And we're becoming less and less compartmentalizable, which I think is a good thing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, 
Matthew's lyrics paint pictures of time, place, and most of all, emotional states of being. It's a magnifying glass focused in on an otherwise unnoticed event that at the same time leaps back, making the tiniest details a center point in universal truths of love and life. On their latest album, I noticed that some of the musical language throughout the album's nine tracks seems to call back to musical references from the band's past, like Inside of Love from their breakthrough album Let Go, or their MTV-ready hit Popular from their debut full-length album High Low. I asked Matthew about his intent when crafting lyrics and more about the process of writing. Ideally, and this is true of most songs that end up on records, I'm pretty much out of my own way. So very little is intentional. In one case, and I don't know if this is something you were referring to, but for example, the song Something I Should Do, I'm talking a lot. Sure. And it sounds like our first single, Popular. And that right. was weirdly intentional because, I'll tell you the story very quickly, but someone in France tweeted, guys, Popular 2020, it would be great if you guys would redo that song to be about um, social media and memes. And our manager, who does not at all mind being thrown under the bus for this, <laughs> I've talked about it publicly a few times and texted him right after another podcast, was like, sorry, he's like, it's totally fine. It's a funny and true story. He forwarded that tweet to the band and said, hey, guys, popular 2020. And my mind blew right out of my eyes because I thought it was such a terrible idea. <laughs> and I tried to very, you know, tried to be politic. And I wrote back to everyone, funny for someone else, you know, like, <laughs> don't want to do that. And then, and then Daniel, our bass player, then chimed back right away, Ben, funny you should mention that because I was just thinking that this song, something I should do, which at the time only had the verses, it would be great if you talked on it and basically like popular. And I didn't like that idea either, but I like to be a good friend and a good band member and a few days later I was on a train and it was a beautiful day and I was I'd just seen a show the night before and was all kind of you know energized from that and I I had an instrumental version of the song in my headphones and I looked out the window and and I thought let me give it a shot and I wrote that whole screed down right and I knew it was like popular and I kind of I kind of like that and I in a way did it for the same reason that I did that first single is that I really love the sound of a lot of ideas coming over a beat, which is why I really love hip hop. And that's why also, because it's just this richness of content just coming at you. And I don't usually have that much to say in that kind of quantity, but it's really nice to free yourself sometimes because usually songwriting or a lot of kind of writing is you're taking impressions or glances of ideas and trying to boil them down into these compact little machines. So it's really an unusual delight to just let it all out the way you would in a conversation, the way we are now, the three right. of us. So yeah. that does harken back. Is songwriting that way for you in terms of lyrics? Like you start with a big kind of ball of gas and, and ideas and you're chipping away and whittling away and getting more specific? Or do the lines come to you and those are usually the lines that we hear on the record? I write a lot of things down. When I think of them, where you know, I can be anywhere, I'll write it down. And I try to give myself time to, you know, every day when I have time to sit down and just kind of noodle. A friend of mine, Dan Wilson, is a wonderful songwriter and who recently did a kind of live Instagram feed where he was talking about songwriting, was talking about the songs that come to him where he feels like, Melissa, like when you were writing your first novel, where you felt like a vessel and you were just channeling it. That happens to him sometimes, but he says it only happens to him when he's in the process of also chipping away at a lot of other songs that aren't coming. So when he's working and having a, a practice, I love this term. It gives him a hot hand. Oh, that's and Isn't that great? And so yeah. by, by doing, even if you're struggling and even if you're making stuff that you're not going to like in the end or you're not going to put out, but if you're just chipping away and working at it, your hands are hot. And then when this kind of flash comes to you, you'll have the facility to get it out. I 100% agree with that. And in my own life, I always have like 10 projects going. And yeah. I absolutely feel that I'm able to receive like that channel stuff because I'm doing all the others. Like I 100% experience that. as well. Exactly. 
because a water pot never boils, right? Also. So if you're just like focused on the one thing, you can't experience that spaciousness. Yeah, I agree with yeah. that. Right. Or if the boil is inspiration, right. if all you're doing is waiting for inspiration, it may never come. And Correct. so And it's like a body in motion stays in motion. Like if you're in the practice, you can catch the idea and you know what to do with it yeah. because you're going. And I really love all these ways of talking about that. All of them, you know, if you if let's say you're doing 10 projects or you're not just watching the pot or whatever it is, and the hot hand, I really love that one because it's more fuel for the fire of motivation to do it, to chip away at whatever it is, yeah. to sit in your workspace and try stuff. So I will give myself time to do that. And then once in a while, something comes. And the stuff that tends to stick is when I just have a little messing around, a little phrase comes. And in this case, it was something that I should do, but I never know how. That was all it was for two months. I just had this thing and I played it three times into a tape recorder and listened to that on loop for a while. And I always liked it and always came back to it and liked it. And so it took months because the seed never, it took a while, but basically that's what I do like in general is write one little sentence. And if I like it, that helps me get out of my own way because I'm inspired by it. And then maybe I'm thinking about it and then I'm in it. And then I forget to criticize and then start trying to add to it. I was not a good student, but I never started a paper in college before like midnight the night before, which is very shameful. But <laughs> what it means is that I was up against it again and again and again and again. And so what I did in the panic of those moments was, well, what are the ideas I have? I have five ideas. Let me write them down, separate from each other. Can I add one idea to this first idea? Is there a sub idea? Okay, add it to that. Now I'm anxious because now I'm supposed to finish that paragraph. That gives me anxiety. Let me move to another one. This one, I have one idea. Can I add something to that? So it's like picking up earth, putting a little water on it and trying to stick it to your mud house or whatever. Love that. No, it's so interesting just because like we were talking about before about people coming to the same point from different angles, like back to the thing of not making my bed. For me, I was like the opposite. I was a brown nosy kid in the front row that had done the paper like three weeks before and like perfect ink <laughs> and whatever. And I yeah, think yeah, yeah. that in my past, that intensity was stifling the vitality out of projects. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so when I try to do something, it's never as good as when I allow it. Yes. And I think that that's also like a life lesson. And when Matthew was talking, one other sort of way in if for people that are listening that want to play with these dual consciousnesses to take it out of creativity to do like an Einstein thing, right? So Einstein and his bicycle, right, is a very famous thing. So he would be in the lab hours and hours on his chalkboards trying to figure out the theory of relativity. But he says that, I'm paraphrasing wildly, but he would say that without his bike rides, he would not have come up with his theory. And yeah. so it's a notion kind of of what I think of as concave and convex consciousness. So like if you're leaning forward in the convex consciousness, it's your rational mind. It's the like, I need to drive here or I need to do this or I'm thinking like, you know, to solve an equation, you have to know about physics, right? So that's like your convex mind. You're doing something. Matthew's writing a song or I'm. it's like I have to have some sense of like, what a brush is and like what the color is or like what Matthew's wanting to impart, you know, or whatever that's right forward. And then the concaveness, which is sort of the leaning back to sort of allow, which is the bike ride or the meditation or mm -hmm. you know, another mm -hmm. thing is something happens in that moment. It's like a farmer that tills his soil constantly will not have crops because you don't allow time for something to take root. You have to let the soil rest, you know, because if not, you're accidentally redigging up everything you've planted. Do you know what I mean? So right. that rest moment in creativity, that allowing moment is often is undervalued, except for people that have touched it. And so the Seymour space was about that. It was about somatic learning. Like you can't tell a blind person, this is what red looks like. It's so hard, right? So until someone has experienced it, it's really difficult to point to it, right? So Matthew can go back to the inspiration because he's experienced it. I can go back to it. But what's really interesting for people that are quote unquote, not artists they can access it. We all come off the assembly line with the same parts. It's just about playing with it and trying yeah. it out. And you don't have to become an artist or a musician as a career. But that 
altered state of consciousness, that moment of allowing that little soft fur in your pocket, I feel like really helps you just navigate the world and like, mm -hmm. you know, kids and your mate or whatever. If I may, I just want to say two things. Melissa, what you'd said about people wanting to be seen and about violence being the uh, voice of the unheard. Yeah, because I, I really feel like a lot of the anger in the world and especially the anonymous commentariat, flaming uh, commentary, I have a very simple notion about it. I think it's people who haven't had the opportunity to be creative mm. feel a need to express. It's on that list, you know, of all the things we need. We need shelter, we need food, we need affection. We need to make something. It's what people do. We make fascism. We make a lot of things, but we like to tinker. And so that's why it's so important. And, and I was thinking that's one other possible silver lining of this very strange chapter that we're going through. Families being together, a whole generation possibly of children who got to spend a lot of time with both their parents who might not have otherwise. And that's a beautiful thing. And another is that maybe a lot of people get the chance to be creative or to just slow down and be calm. And they might find that some of that need to be heard will have been satisfied. And maybe that'll help them be more measured in their expression later. I couldn't agree more. And I've obviously been talking about it a lot because of the Seymour space. Like a number of friends have called me and been like, minus the deadly disease, are you so psyched? This is exactly what you've been trying to get, you know, like to get timeouts and like silence and, you know, whatever. So yeah, I mean, I agree that that is absolutely the silver lining. But I think what you said, Matthew, is really profound, which I hadn't thought of it in that way, is the notion that those frustrations are sourced from an unexplored creativity. I feel like that's really profound because mm -hmm. we are generative beings and we do have to make, and he's right, like what are we making? We make war, we make, right. And so if we had a positive outlet for this, like you said, they're linked to each other. And also just people want to be valued. You know, it's very basic. It's like, yeah. they're just human needs. When people are fighting politically, I just say like, would you talk to your friend like that? Drill it down to like a smaller opinion on like whether you like, you know, Thai food versus Mexican. It's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, you know, they just, we all have divergent opinions. Everybody dialed it down. Yeah. And I also, I'm glad that something you said reminded me of the other thing that I thought was that another reason to, as you were saying, make space for somebody or to listen is to respect the truth and the notion that were it not for where I grew up and who I grew up with, I might have your opinion. Totally. Right. If not by the grace of my lucky birth to open-minded parents who themselves were very lucky to be born to open, you know, it's just lottery numbers here. Nobody is better. You didn't earn your enlightenment. Right. Some people do. But. Yeah. And that opens up a topic that's probably too vast for this. But what you're right. talking about, Matthew, is privilege. I mean, it's yeah. basically oh, yeah. the word of privilege. It's like, we're privileged. Like, I have conversations. You don't know, have a lot of psychosocial conversations because it's part of my job. And when, you know, the first thing is I'm totally privileged. Do you know what I mean? For a million reasons. But this will open up a whole other thing. But with that privilege comes responsibility, yeah. you know, to be kind or just open or, and you know, mm -hmm. and... and mm -hmm. And I'm wrong, like a lot. And I think that's another thing, like, we don't know anything. I mean, not to open up into this like crazy philosophical thing, but it's like, you know, we're hurtling on a rock through space, you know? So every once in a while, like my friend Ann Previn always says, like, zoom out. We don't actually know. Like, you're so sure about stuff. And we're like, we don't know anything. Like, we're all winging it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like this is like the extended conversational version of something I should do, like yeah. the screed that, that you <laughs> right. have in that. Totally. It, 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 it's basically like all these things are going on. Things are crazy. But I can go back to this place of saying empathy is good. Lack of empathy is bad. You know, I know you you paraphrased uh, Bon Iver, but, the, you know, yeah. holy math says we're never not together. Yeah. Like everything's crazy. We're hurling on this rock in space. But I can always go back to this, like, if I'm caring, if I show care for the person on the other end, that can't be a bad thing. Yeah. That's got to bring us together in some way. Yeah. And sometimes it's the only way to make a connection at all. I was having a conversation with someone who was on the other side politically, and she said something like, you know, I hear people say that, that our president lies. I never see it. What is that about? And, you know, and, and so I was having this conversation that was frustrating because we really had separate realities, different sets of facts. And I just want to pay respect to the idea that 
I don't think hers are right, but you know, let's just say they're different. I'm not saying one's better or worse. I'm just saying they're different. And the conversation was totally disjointed, but we were together in a social situation, so we had to make it work. And we'd reached this kind of freeze. And I thought, why don't I just speak about emotions in very simple terms? And I said, he makes me feel bad. Wow. And I think he makes other people feel bad too. And she said, he does? Yeah. And then we were reconnected. And even though I wish there was no need for that, and I wish that our religion was science and we could just deal with that, and then we'd be free to be totally free. We could believe in anything at that point if we were just agreeing about this one thing. But since since we're not there, it's necessary and useful sometimes to speak emotionally and to speak in simple terms. And that's why I was saying empathy is good, lack of empathy is bad. Let's just be very simple about it. Right. And Matthew, to your point, I think part of why it worked with this person was that you were speaking from your personal experience. You just said, it's dangerous. You know, the liberals, which we are, we have to be careful about moral high ground, which is tremendously condescending, even if our intent is positive. Like, who says that we're right? Do you know what I mean? We have to be very careful about moral high ground. And I think you can rarely go wrong with two things that you said, which is care. Yeah. is a beautiful word to remember because it just means I care about your opinion. I don't yeah. have to agree with it. It's like the listening. It's just caring means I care enough to listen to what you're going to say. Care is just simple. And then when you said, he makes me feel bad, who can argue with that? You're right. not telling her he shouldn't make you do this or I do. No. You're just you're just sharing a truth. So I think if we speak to each other with that word care, which I think is beautiful, which I don't use enough, I think it's really good that it came up because it's just caring to just be like, let me listen. And then the notion of just sharing from a personal perspective and just saying, I feel this. And it's not, I think people resist trying to be changed by others. It's just a human resistance thing. It's like when someone tries to make you, so when you try to convert someone, it's always, you know, what you resist persists, you know? So I think that really works. For that very reason, you were just like, this is how he makes me feel. Who can argue with that? Who can tell you how it doesn't make you feel? And then some of that goes into her mind of like, oh, that's interesting, you know? Yeah. And truth, I was just saying this the other day in a conversation, it came up that like, truth is a pain. Truth is a pain in the Mm. ass. You know, when you're trying to find truth in what happened around a certain situation or an issue or a, you know, a historical event or a current whatever, finding what is the truth of what happened. Well, first of all, there are many. And that, what is that great quote in the, it's the beginning of The Kid Stays in the Picture, that movie about the producer. Robert Evans. Robert Evans. And it said there, there's something like there are three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but a truth like I feel bad or I feel good or he makes me feel like he doesn't like people or something like that. Simple truths are, are easier to use. They have fewer moving parts, and that's nice. Feelings are irrefutable, yeah. right? Right. Like no one can deny you that you feel a certain way. Yeah. That's kind of like it is. It is. It exists. That's right. Yeah. Melissa, Matthew, this was such a lovely conversation and so worth. I would have woken up two hours oh. early <laughs> in, the, uh, in, the, in the West Coast for this, any day of the week. But this was so wonderful. I feel like... I got to know the album more. I feel like I got to know creativity more through both of your stories and your connection to your practice, whether it be rigid or wild uh, growing. And I might even consider a cold shower. now. <laughs> Let me say, it, I, I really me enjoy too. them now. You get an ecstatic feeling after. I'm going to try that too. It's, it's incredible. All right. And it's good for the environment, right? Because right. it's like less, you know, right. So it's win-win. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you both so much. And, you know, I'm, I'm wishing you like good health and good things in these, uh, these challenging days. And to you too. Stay safe. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you everyone for listening. A huge thanks to Matthew from Not A Surf for joining the show. I'm a lifelong fan and it was such a joy to hold that space all together. Thank you so much, Melissa, for joining and for your openness throughout the whole talk. Your work, practice, and passion is so inspiring. I hope you all took something meaningful from this conversation. For me, I've tried to add in a cold shower here and there, and I've really leaned into that idea Matthew talked about from Dan Wilson of hot hands. This notion that the more creative endeavors you have going at once, 
the more ready you'll be to catch that great creative wave or project or idea when it hits you. I hope you'll subscribe and share this podcast with a friend too. If you liked what you heard, please post a review or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It would mean so much. Making Ways is created, hosted, and illustrated by me, Rob Goodman. If you've got a music and art project you'd like to work on together, I'd love to connect with you. I'm on Instagram or Twitter at the Rob Goodman, and you can follow the show on Instagram at making.ways or visit us online at makingwayspodcast.com to suggest topics or guests for upcoming shows. Be well and see you soon. Thanks again for listening.